Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome back to the Form Book Club, where we continue to discuss In Defense of Sanity by G.K. Chesterton, 100, the, oh, the best essays of G.K. Chesterton. We're operating under a severe disability for this session, and that is our good friend and colleague Vivian Dudrow uh, is under the weather. So we hope she's uh, doing well. We'll pray that she recovers fully. In the meantime, Joseph, I'm afraid that you and I are going to have to carry the load here, which will be much more difficult without the great Vivian with us. We uh, ended with the essay on the new pootery. So we're going to continue on page 237 with the essay on the return of the barbarian. And... This essay appeared in Avowals and Denials, which is a collection of essays, in 1934. And so I assume he wrote it prior to that, but at least not after that. And this is a time when much of the world was praising Hitler uh, for having brought the economy back and uh, brought the Volkswagen uh, there for you know, people's transportation started the Autobahns, the freeways, was organizing Germany, was bringing Germany back from a disaster after World War I. Uh, but Chesterton uh, was not fooled. And uh, he says on page 237, the first page of this chapter, beginning of the second paragraph, now ever since Herr Hitler began to turn the beer garden into a bear garden, which is kind of a uh, little zoo type thing, there's been an increasing impression on sensitive and intelligent minds that something very dangerous has occurred. Wow. Yeah, I want, uh, yeah, I want to basically maybe put this into, into context. Obviously, Chesterton and Belloc were always suspicious of the Germans anyway, prior to Hitler coming to power. So for them, this would be the confirmation of, of, of their own fears. I mean, but I do like the fact that he differentiates between the beer garden German and the bear garden German. And he says he, he's very happy to love and embrace the bear garden, uh, the beer garden. Beer garden. In other words, and I sometimes think about the, there's a difference between, say, the Bavarian spirit, that Catholic spirit of Germany, uh, and, and the, the Prussian spirit. And uh, and again, you know, during very significantly during the election which brought the Nazis to power in 1933, um, the 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 areas of the country which did not vote for Hitler were the Catholic parts of the country, especially Bavaria, and the areas where where he got most support was Prussia and the Protestant parts of Germany. So there there are these two Germanys, and I'm and I'm glad that he recognised that at the beginning. Um, because it was the worst, it was the it was the Bear Garden Germans that got the better of the Beer Garden Germans in the, in that struggle for the heart of Germany, and of course the rest is unfortunately rather violent history. Yes, continuing on page two thirty eight at about the middle, he says civilized men 
must defend civilization against any sort of barbarism. And the reason is that civilization retains the power of curing its own diseases, whereas it is only by an accident that the barbarians may be free from the disease. And one reason, and we'll see it in some other coming essays coming up, that I think Chesson is so perennial is that he, he sees these fundamental principles active, active, you know, in his own circumstances, but they apply everywhere. And we, we are, are in the presence of a declining civilization, at least in the United States, but I would say the West. And one of the signs of that decline is we're losing, we haven't lost it yet entirely, but we risk losing the ability to reform ourselves from within. Uh, when the organs of society become corrupted, when democratic voting, for example, can no longer be relied upon, where what you hear from authoritative sources of the government can no longer be trusted, then you have a disease with no civilizational source of cure, at least on the level of society and government. The only cure is going to be from the bottom, it seems to me, from the very foundation of civilization, which is the family. But I, I see right now we are declining into barbarism, the inability to distinguish between man and woman, for example, uh, the abolition of the family uh, as an ideal, the flattening down of real distinctions, that is male and female, but can we overcome that as a society or will we be condemned to barbarism? That's the yeah, question. I, yeah, the one thing I, you know, I, I, I always say when, when this issue of the culture of death comes up is it is suicide and it is self-destructive. It's just how much damage is done uh, in the process of its suicide. But what I like as well about this, Father, you know, this is Chesterman is best as an aphorist. Uh, at the top of page 239, there's this wonderfully succinct definition of barbarism. Barbarism means the destruction of all that men have ever understood by men who do not understand it. I mean, and that's, that's the... Uh, perfect description of barbarism it's the arrogance of the ignorant um uh, you know and, and that's the trouble is they 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 they, they despise history mm -hmm. they have nothing to learn from the accumulated the accumulated wisdom of thousands of years of human experience they know better themselves that is the definition of a barbarism of a, of a barbarian you know and what class does that most typically infect well, unfortunately, I would say now not just the one class, but it was the intelligentsia, of course, originally. Um, but that seeped down now via the education system to the rank and file, and that's the problem. It the is a problem. Well, I, that, that's my hope, is that the rank and file or the ordinary person, the working person, the family person, uh, they don't, they're not taken in by this. But as you say, when you've gone through the uh, institutions, you know, the march of the institutions, you've got not just the intelligentsia, but the uh, media, you know, television, radio, internet, movies, entertainment. You've got corporations now, you've got the military, you've got the government, and you've got sports. 
I mean, they've, they've really tried to infiltrate or uh, taint every major cultural institution, with one, with one exception. That is, the Christian community, especially the Catholic Church. But even there, we have to be on our guard against the incursions of the barbarian in the Catholic Church. Yeah, those are the spirit of the age. I mean, I was reminded this yesterday. I spoke in Atlanta last night, so I stayed in the hotel yesterday evening. So, you know, you're normally a bit sort of buzzed up because you've just given a talk and you've spoken to lots of people and sold books and the rest of it. You're not going to go straight to sleep. So I find myself in a hotel room. We don't have a TV. So the perennial temptation before, you know, I'm not ready to go to bed is to stick the TV on and use the remote and go through the 50 or so channels, you know, and, and it really, it, 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 it's getting worse and it's been very bad for a long while, but I mean, there was nothing in any of the channels that was not utterly decadent um, and inane. There, there was nothing requiring intelligence and it was all uh, uh, playing to the lowest common denominator in terms of appetites and not necessarily healthy appetites. Um, you know, so it, it, it really, if that is what the Palantir stone that many people are spending their time staring into every evening, we shouldn't be surprised if despair is the consequence. Well, my own experience parallels that and even anticipates it. it was maybe more than 20 years ago, I was giving retreats down in a wonderful uh, retreat house in Alhambra, California, run by the nuns of the Sacred Heart, Carmelites of the Sacred Heart. And I don't have a television set either, but it was after a long day of hearing confessions and giving talks, and I went into the priest's room there, and there's television. And this is Los Angeles, so they had a lot of candles, you know. And so I did, well, I'll just surf through there. I did the same thing. I just clicked, 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 and shout. I couldn't find a single thing worth pausing on, you know. And I've done this once in a while in a car. I don't usually listen to things in a car. I try and think or pray. But once in a while, I'll just turn on the radio and hit that seek button, you know, and, and go through AM and FM. And you might hit a classical music station or you might hear a gospel preacher. But the music, by and large, is, is unlistenable to my taste. And the commentary is unbearable. Uh, I don't think, well, this is what people are listening to. Right. You know? I mean, uh, you, you were, you were, you were um, suffering from a surfeit of charity and describing it as music. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and also, I, I do use, use the internet a lot for email, of course, but I mean, uh, checking things. The internet is wonderful for like checking a misspelling of something or, or, or the spelling of a name or, you know, something else comes up in a manuscript. But every so often, I, I someone sends you something, I click on it, I read a little blog item, and I go to the comments. And you scroll through the comments. I mean, it's it's obscene, it's uh, vulgar language, uh, it's it's you know it's insane. It's a it's a one you know one or two lines, not nothing that would can you know be considered civil discourse. I go back once in a while, I'll read the Federalist Papers. These were newspaper articles, okay, in the 1700s. Uh, and, I mean, each one is a little masterpiece. So there's definitely been a, I mean, I hate to, you know, now I'm an old man, so on top of the good old days. But these are the days way before me. But in any event, yes, uh, let's go back to the definition. Barbarism is a destruction of all that men have ever understood by men. We're going to understand it, yeah. 
Yeah, and if the thing is, I mean, what, from what you just said about the Federalist Papers and comparing it with the comments we get on the internet, we need to remind ourselves that these essays that we've been going over for the last oh. seven months now are all originally newspaper articles. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're looking for the decline of civilization, you know, look at the quality of newspaper journalism uh, 100 years ago, 1934, 90 years ago, uh, to, to today. I mean, if you, if you want an empirical measurement, of the of the standardization by low standard that, that Chesterton prophesied, there it is. Uh, the sentence following the one you quoted, Joseph, on page 239, uh, after defining barbarism, that is the sense in which a detached and dispassionate person watching this, that strange turn of the tide in the center of tribal Germany will be disposed to suspect the tragedy. So he. And that's, of course, a prophecy, prophecy because that's prophetic, exactly yeah. And then on page 240, about two thirds of the way down, what is really disquieting about this new note of narrow nationalism or tribalism in the North is that there's something shrill and wild about it that has been heard in those destructive crises of history. I mean, he has the ear to hear the shrill and wild tones of what was happening. I, I highlighted that exact sentence uh, yeah, and for the same reasons. Well, it would be nice if Tessin were here today, continuing to think and to write. But, you know, uh, even reading what he wrote then, if you read it attentively, he might as well be writing now. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's astonishing about it, you know, in one sense, you're tempted to see him as a prophet because, uh, you know, I look at some of the ones we're kind of coming to, coming to soon. I mean, he's talking about so much the, the, of the situation we find ourselves in today. But we do, I think, also need to remember that really what we're seeing today is the full-grown weed. Uh, you know, it was sprouting in Chesterton's time, and he could see it, but he could also see where it was going to go if it wasn't curtailed. Um, so what we're seeing is, is is the continuation of something which was already evident in Chesterton's own time. It's not as if he is visualizing something he couldn't possibly understand. It was all there. It's just there hasn't been curtailed. It hasn't been resisted sufficiently. And now, like the kudzu, uh, you know, that's around this area, uh, you know, the weed that ate the south, you know, if you don't keep it under control, it gets out of control. And it's not as if there haven't been weeds civilizational weeds in the history of civilization. And so someone like Chesterton, who, who knows his history, who's read these things, he can recognize the species, you know, uh, when it appears again, even though it's only just barely germinating. Yeah. Father, was germinating a pun? <laughs> it was not. <laughs> but, I mean, you can even detect a pun when it's not intended. That's good. <laughs> By the way, I am one fourth German, and I love the. I spent three years, two years in Germany. I love the people there and a lot of the traditions. And I was in Bavaria, of course, which is the warmest. Uh, I would say, you know, most congenial part of Germany. Well, actually, this is a good segue into the next essay called "On Man, Heir of All Ages," because this exactly has to do with you know knowing history as a way and being part of your history as a way of moving into the future. He begins by saying, 
If the modern man is indeed the heir of all the ages, he is often the kind of heir who tells the family solicitor, lawyer, to sell the whole damned estate, lock, stock, and barrel, and give him a little ready money to throw away the races in the nightclubs. Uh, you know, I mean, you mean like tearing down statues? And like in Canada, this burnt some history books? Destroying our memory of the past? Once again, you know. All right, so again, it's a, Chesterton says another metaphor, which we might, I also highlighted that passage. Um, I actually continued, if I can continue the next sentence, because that part I highlighted, from where okay. you left off, about the races or the nightclubs, he is certainly not the kind of heir who ever visits his estate, and if he really owns all the historic lands of ancient and modern history, he's very... He's a very absentee landlord. <laughs> uh, and I say, I love the whole metaphor. And it reminds me of another metaphor that Chesterton uses when he says that the modern world is living off its Christian capital. In other words, that the, what the, the semblance and remnant of any civilization and virtue which we have in our culture is a consequence of Christendom, a consequence of Christianity. And we're squandering that and canceling it now. Uh, and, the, and the consequence of that will be the return of the bear garden. I mean, it's not only Germans that can create bar barbaric, uh, murderous cancel cultures. Um, and we're in, the, we're in the process of, of doing the same ourselves if we're not very careful. Well, that's it on the Christian capital. We have another book which we discussed on our book club here by Robert Riley, America on Trial. He makes a wonderful case with lots of evidence and citations that at the root of the American founding uh, you know, intellectual project, Yes, it was, it was Locke and uh, the Scottish, you know, Lockians and so on and others. But it was really a distillation of and a carrying on of the medieval Christian tradition of limited government, you know. And so even our Constitution in the United States of America is basically rooted in Christian principles and Christian tradition, Christian history. And that's the capital that we are squandering right now yeah and again at the, at the bottom of the page continuing with the metaphor but now talking about if you like the inheritance that the modern man take, takes the ground and treats with contempt and actually how valuable it is so the, what's the bottom of that page 242 nevertheless there are some of us who do hold that the metaphor of inheritance from human history is a true metaphor that any man who is cut off from the past and content with the future is a man most unjustly disinherited and all the more unjustly if he is happy in his lot and is not permitted even to know what he has lost cancel culture right and i for one believe that the mind of man is at its largest and especially at its broadest when it feels the brotherhood of humanity linking it up with remote and primitive and even barbaric things in other words, the knowledge of history is, is the brotherhood of man, right? It's actually treating our ancestors as brothers and sisters, not treating them you know, in a sort of pseudo-racist sense as inferiors who should be cancelled, exterminated. Right, and as he says in Rothschild, it's democracy of the dead. We give yes. them a vote too. But I had also underlined exactly those sentences, Joseph, so... Uh, I, I think what's happening is it's not that I mean, everything he writes, I think, is worth reading and enjoyable. But as we're reading this in 2021, what strikes us is what is so contemporary. 
you know, yes. and so we, we, we underline those things. Uh, now he goes into the four stages of history, the bottom of that page 243, is Mr. Dawson, that's Christopher Dawson, his order the confusion without contradicting the evidence, and his conclusion is that there were broadly four stages in the spiritual history of humanity. Now Christopher Dawson, of course, is a premier a Catholic historian. He died many years ago, but his books are still worth reading, uh, even though we don't publish them in Ignatius Press. But there's some books we don't publish that uh, are worth reading. Uh, his, his are one of them. Do we want to talk about those four phases, Joseph, or, or not? Well, I haven't highlighted them, but I'm happy if you'd like to do so, and I'll contribute to the conversation should you do so. All right, well, I, I wanted to get to the last part, the last paragraph. I guess you can't understand that well unless you do the Four state, yeah, the pre previous three stages, uh, because he has, to me, a very, very profound thought here. Which I'll first I'll say it, and then we'll see how we go, how he demonstrates it. That is, uh, the church never grows old. Uh, we have not, we've not superseded Saint Benedict by St. Francis. We had the Benedictines and we got the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And the Jesuits, wonderful as they were anyway, uh, did not supersede Benedict and St. Francis. And the later religious orders don't supersede Ignatius. Why not? Because the church gathers into her treasury all that is good and raises it up to eternal value. Uh, so he talks about four stages of history. The first stage he calls the spiritual, uh, in which there's a sense of the spiritual everywhere. The second stage is where you got the sacred and the profane without distinction. You got government and priests, you know, uh, together. Uh, the third stage he calls the rise of world religions. And then finally, the fourth stage, which is Christianity. At the bottom of page 245, he says, I will not complete the four phases here because the last deals with the more controversial question of the Christian system. I merely use them, that is, these stages of history, as a convenient example classification to illustrate a neglected truth, colon, that a complete human being ought to have all these things stratified in him, as strata, as you say, in his own existence, so long as they are in the right order of importance, that the man should be a prince looking from the pinnacle of a tower built by his fathers and not a contemptuous cad perpetually kicking down the ladder by which he climbed. And I think that's, that's beautiful. It is. And, that, you know, one thing I love about rereading these essays is, you know, when, well, I, give, I give talks all the time and I, I'm writing essays all the time and I'm always dropping, you know, aphorisms from Chesterton from memory, I mean, Chesson used to do the same thing, which means, of course, I'm invariably, I'm not putting it in quotes, I'm invariably misquoting him. Huh. And, and what I was pleased here is this final sentence. I'm always quoting this, but I realize when on rereading, I'm always misquoting it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always talking about a, a supercilious cad, not a contemptuous cad, you know, kicking down the ladder, ladder by which he's climbed. Um, so it, it's always good to see an aphorism that you know so well this sort of part, as, as, as Ronald Knox said, Monsignor Ronald Knox said about Chesterton, he said that Chesterton's aphorisms became um, ah, 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 the platitudes of our thought. Um, so it's almost that the Chesterton's aphorisms become 
platitudes. And so some of them, for me, they, they're ready to hand all the time. You know, whenever I talk about the past, this one, always quoting it. And then you come across, first of all, to learn where it, where it came from, because I had no idea. That's why I misquoted it, because I don't know where to find it. <laughs> but, you know, you, you see this, and then you're reminded of where he wrote it, uh, and also exactly what he wrote, not my faulty memory of it. Yes. So I think we can not sum up, but at least say this about it. Th this is the antidote to cancel culture. It does not mean that you have to simply integrate into your life everything which went before, because he talks about stratified here in their proper order of importance. We have to sift through. But that's what culture does. That's what true tradition does. That's what the church does. It sifts through the spoils of each, so to speak, and keeps the gold and lets the dross go. And it, but it also is necessary to, to, to have a knowledge of the dross because we learn from mistakes. You know, so just to say, well, that was bad. Those people did bad things. Let's cancel yeah. them. So well, no that's, one what, that's, why we have you, that's why we have you on the show, Joseph, too. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> to make the mistakes. Right. Do we have time for another essay? Oh, we got five minutes. Let's give it a shot. All right. Well, but this one, well, uh, all right. Oh, are we, are we going to? No, no, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. See, but we, I mean, we, have, we, have option, we have an option A, B, or C, Father. We can either no, begin it and not finish it, begin it and finish it, or not begin it. Wow, that's a lot of show. You know something? This is one I'd like to have Vivian with us for. Uh, because it has to do with the state versus the family. And the idea that the state can, you know, supplement, not just supplement, but can substitute for a lot of the activities of the family. And I, again, this is, uh, it's so timely and so pertinent. So let's conclude there. And we'll see you all again next week on the Forum Book Club. God bless you all. If you enjoyed this discussion, Please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.